You're listening to the Forefront Church Podcast in New York City, where our vision is to see lives, neighborhoods, and our city renewed through Jesus. Hi guys, I am Jen Fisher. I'm your associate pastor here at Forefront Brooklyn. And uh, last week, we started a new series called Misused Scripture, where we are taking a more thorough look at some of the popular Bible passages that are often misunderstood or misapplied at first glance, or have maybe become that way with time, I guess. Um, And I think this is an important conversation because nothing does more damage to human life quite like misused scripture. Like, in short, bad theology can ruin lives. You know, we see it often. We see how misused scripture is the driving force behind fundamentalist sex and acts of cruelty and violence that are done in the name of Jesus that strip away the message of compassion and grace and forgiveness that is actually at the heart of what he came to teach. So this is why properly understanding and interpreting scripture is so important, because our interpretations shape our views of the world, right? They help shape the foundation from which we see ourselves, our God, and our communities. So this morning, I want us to start off by talking further about what we've kind of already been talking about this morning, bringing up that that dirty little word that Ben mentioned, perfection, right? Being a perfectionist. I think we all, as New Yorkers, hey Ian, can you take some of the echo off of my, off the audio for me? Sorry guys. So let's try that again. So... Uh, Being New Yorkers, right, we kind of all have a tendency to struggle with perfectionists because our city just drives achievement, perfection, right? You know, perfectionism is that trait that we often, we know it's a flaw, but it's not really a flaw. It's kind of that thing that you say when you're in a job interview and they say, what's your greatest weakness? You go, oh, I'm a perfectionist, you know, right? You know what I mean. We think about perfectionists in our popular culture and I think of people like Martha Stewart, or Steve Jobs, people who've set the bar so high and can be, you know, applauded, or, you know, maybe you're frustrated with Martha Stewart for doing that when you're trying to set a nice table. But I believe that we all have some, um, some struggles that we have with this perfectionist idea, right, on some scale, and maybe you go in and out of that in different seasons of your life. And so I want to share a little bit of my own struggles with perfectionism. I want to be vulnerable with you guys today because I believe that vulnerability leads to wholeness and that scripture is ultimately driving us towards wholeness with God. So our aim today is to come a little closer in wholeness with our creator. So last summer, I was really struggling with perfectionism. Okay, We were in this transitional season in the life of our church Jonathan Williams, our lead pastor, who's not here today, but um, he was moving from just the lead pastor of Brooklyn to being the senior pastor of both Forefront Manhattan and Forefront Brooklyn. And with his change in title, I was also going to be receiving a new role. I was going to become the associate pastor. And I was kind of terrified of that P word, pastor, because I had this definition of it in my head that wasn't really something that I wanted to take on. I had this perfectionist idea of what it meant to be a pastor that, that meant that I had to know scripture way better than I did at the time. And I thought that it meant that I had to have all the right answers and all the right things to say and all the messy conversations and um, the tough questions about God and that if I didn't know how to handle those things that I wasn't qualified to be in that role. You know, and, and during that season, that stressful, anxious season where the self-criticism and the standards of perfection and anxiety were coming out really strong in me. I was having these thoughts that would translate into statements that would say things like, well, I can't do that. I'm just going to screw it up. Like, I can't do that. You know, I don't know how to do it, so I can't. 
So it was kind of paralyzing, that fear and that insecurity. Like Maybe you guys can relate to that. You know, being a perfectionist, you don't want to put something out into the world that's not perfect because you might actually get judged, right? And that's a terrifying feeling. Maybe you guys can relate to some of that, I hope. You know, maybe you're an artist who's struggling. Every time you see a blank page or a new canvas, you get that feeling of resistance, right? Maybe you are in a new job, you've got a new role, or you're a new parent, and you're struggling to give yourself the patience to figure that out, and you're feeling really critical of yourself. You know, do you pay attention to the thoughts that you say, you know, each day? Ben talked about that, like that mantra of trying to change your thoughts. Do you have a running narrative of criticism that if you said it out loud to someone else, it would just be so harsh? Like, I would never say to my best friend some of the things that I say to myself. That, in a nutshell, is how I would describe perfectionism. And contrary to what our brains often tells us or what our society tells us, perfectionism is actually, it actually hampers success. It can be a direct path to anxiety, addiction, even suicide. My favorite author to turn to when I'm in this place in my life um, is a shame researcher and a psychologist named Dr. Brene Brown, who you guys might know from some of her TED Talks about shame and vulnerability. But Dr. Brown has so much more to say than that. She says this about perfection. Perfectionism is a self-destructive, unattainable, and addictive belief system that fuels this primary thought. If I look perfect, live perfect, and do everything perfectly, then I can avoid shame, judgment, and blame. Which brings me to our scripture today. We're specifically narrowing in on Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Isn't that awesome? Don't you love when you open up your Bible, you're looking for a little peace, you know, you're feeling a lot of anxiety, and you open it up to something like that? Love it. Just love it. So what do you guys feel when you hear that verse? Like, how do you filter that word perfect through your life experiences and your feelings? What comes to mind for you? You know, if you're anything like me, then maybe you feel a little bit of pressure. Maybe you feel like, whether consciously or not, you feel like, I gotta have my act together. You know, I gotta be perfect and free of sin before God will love me. Or maybe you feel something like what a good friend once told me. Um, He struggles when he hears a verse like that because he struggles with the phrase heavenly father. His earthly father was um, an alcoholic and abusive towards him. So he has a really hard time when he hears God referred to that way. He struggles to hear the love in a verse like that, considering his own relationship with his earthly father, right? Maybe you struggle to hear the love in a verse like that because you struggle to love yourself, to be kind to yourself. So it's even harder to imagine that God is kind to you in that way when you can't even love yourself. And this is why it's so important that we have these conversations this morning, because when we just put our own feelings and life experiences onto scripture, that's how we can misuse it, right? We do ourselves this great disservice when we don't look into the history or the culture behind um, what this passage was, you know, the culture that this passage was written in. We do ourselves a disservice when we don't look at the literary devices embedded on the page, because after all, the Bible is a piece of literature. There's this big fancy word that fancy church people and theologians like to use. It's called hermeneutics. It's just this fancy way of saying the art or science of how we interpret the Bible. And proper hermeneutics, responsible hermeneutics, tells us that we should look at the history and at the literary devices and the culture embedded in the stories that we're looking at. This, in short, is what we call context. That's what we're going to call it this morning. And there is an entire context surrounding this verse that if we don't look at it, we're doing ourselves a disservice. 
My friend Ryan Phipps, the lead pastor of Forefront Manhattan, he says that one verse is like a blade of grass. And if we just look at that, then we're missing the whole landscape. You know, in my mind, the landscape that comes to mind is like the rolling hills of Ireland with green everywhere and sheep and rainbows and stuff. How much would we be missing out on the beauty of what God is doing if I was just looking at one tiny blade of grass within that beautiful landscape? So this morning, let's back up a little bit. Let's look at the landscape. Let's start with what Leanne just read for us, the passage starting with verse 43. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. He says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. All right, so let's unpack some of the context of this, because that's the point of a sermon, right? I did the research this week, and now I'm here to share it with you, okay? But honestly, that's another P word that I feared last summer, this P word preaching, right? Because I really do believe that so often, so much scripture gets misused because we listen to what a preacher or a pastor or an author says on a stage or in a book, and we just take that at face value. You know, we apply that into our lives. But maybe the way that the Spirit is moving for you is something different, I really encourage you guys to go home and to actually dig into scripture yourselves, to look at commentaries and to look at articles and decide for yourself what you think these verses are saying. Because maybe you might find that you disagree with me. And if you do, that's totally fine. Because we are the kind of community where we hope that we would be able to disagree with each other and have charitable dialogue and to grow together as a community. We can disagree and still be a church, right? So that being said, this is why I want to kind of unpack the ways that I look at a piece of scripture when I come to it so that you might start to think about how you do that as well. So for me, when I look at a passage like this, the first thing that I do is um, I ask, like, what are the words that are sticking out to me right now? Like, at where I am in my faith journey, like, where do I feel like the Spirit is speaking to me? Maybe because I want to know more about those words or because they make me curious or angry or I don't know, whatever. I think those words for me in this passage is, um, are righteous and perfect, those two words. So from there, I start studying. I looked into commentaries and lexicons, and I started to find out that Matthew wrote his gospel to show that God kept his ancient promise to the people of Israel through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, okay? So he is writing his gospel story, through this framework of the story of the people of Israel. He's trying to communicate with them, so he's using like a a pattern or story that they could understand. And so throughout his gospel, he's mirroring the Old Testament with what Jesus is doing during his ministry. And so this is, you know, his whole goal in that is to teach them that Jesus is the climax of their story. So here we are, right? Jesus is ascending up onto a mountain, He's sitting down to teach his disciples, and he's talking about the laws or, um, you know, the principles of the people of Israel that they got from the Old Testament, right? Um, And this is mirroring another event from the Old Testament. This is mirroring Moses going up on a mountain to receive the Ten Commandments to talk about the laws with God, right? So Matthew's trying to do something here to communicate something here, and this passage has come to be known as the Sermon on the Mount. This entire chapter of Matthew is that. So I think about it, and I think, you know, if Matthew was writing for us today, maybe he would be trying to convey this story through social media or something like that. But he's not. He's trying to write 
this story in a, a context that the culture of the people he's writing to might understand. So it's important we remember that as we read. And then as I see that, I think that, you know, one of the themes that he's writing with is righteousness. So for me, when I think of the word righteous, I think of, you know, someone who's a rule follower or like an exemplary citizen, someone who always does the right thing. But I'm not sure that that really helps me understand, like, how to move closer to my understanding of God. So when I look up the word righteous in the Greek lexicon, and I look for the original Greek meaning of that word, which is something like dikaios. I don't speak Greek, so I'm not totally sure. But when I look at that definition and I filter it through the context of God's kingdom, I come to a definition that describes someone whose way of thinking, feeling, and acting is wholly conformed to the will of God. So that's my working definition right now. I think that maybe Matthew's trying to use this word in a way that exemplifies like a personal faithfulness and a loyalty to God's will and his ways. And I think we often hear that word and we, we feel pressure, right? I have to be righteous. You know, maybe you grew up in a church or a denomination that, that emphasized faith by good works. So you feel like my actions and the way that I behave determine whether I'm righteous or justified in Christ, Right? Well, I think what Jesus is trying to get us to wrap our brains around in this sermon, and actually I think it's what he's trying to get us to wrap our brains around in all of scripture, is that we're not justified just by our actions and our behaviors. We are justified through him, through his death and resurrection, through his grace and love for us. So um, if we can start to kind of understand that, and we can read the scriptures through that understanding, it starts to open things up for us. You know, Jesus came to change the game. He came to help us understand the depth of God's love for us through our tiny little human concept, right? So here he is at the very beginning of the sermon. He's um, talking to his disciples, trying to help them understand what he's going for here. And he says to them, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And when we take that to mean, you know, oftentimes that's taken to mean, oh, Jesus agrees with all the laws. But when we broadly assume that, when we cast generalizations onto scripture, then we miss the specifics of what God is trying to do. Because right after that, Jesus actually kind of, he flips some of these Old Testament principles and passages. So for example, here we are at the end of chapter five. He's talking to this culture of people in Israel who live by the rules, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, right? They live by this justice of an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth kind of get that. We have a lot of that in our society as well, okay? But he's trying to tell them, no, I'm, I'm fulfilling the law at the same time that I'm utterly changing it. I'm here to bring it into completion. I'm here to, to make it make new sense to you. And he's introducing this radical kind of grace, and he tells them, no longer do I want you to love your neighbor and hate your enemies. I want you to love your neighbor and love your enemies too, because that's how Jesus understands righteousness, with this view full of love and grace and compassion. And the Greek word that he uses there for fulfill, when he says that he's come to fulfill the law, it can mean both um, <clears throat> meeting its full requirements, and it can also mean perfecting it, bringing it to completion. And there's that word again, right? Perfect. Fulfilling scripture, perfecting something according to Jesus means lovingly bringing into its fully intended purpose. So once again, remember, Matthew is trying to mirror the Old Testament. He's trying to get us to see the parallels and contradictions of Jesus' teachings. And so um, he's telling us here that we no longer have to be slaves to the law. Now we are given the gift of grace. 
And it's by grace that we are saved. By grace we are justified. By grace our sins are forgiven because God loved us enough to send his son into the world to die for us so that we might receive this incredible grace. And so that brings me back to this word, perfect. Here we are now, we're in verse 48. We're seeing how Jesus is, is telling the sermon through the lens of compassion and grace and he's talking about how we should love our enemies. So when he gets to that passage, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, he's saying that in regards to what he was just saying about enemy love. So when he talks about perfect in that passage, he's saying it looks like loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you. It looks like loving people whether they love you in return or not. And it looks like not showing prejudice, greeting and loving people who are not like you just the same as you would for people who are like you. Being perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. It's the culmination of what Jesus was just talking about. <clears throat> the Greek word perfect here is teleos. That's how I'm pronouncing it anyway. And the word teleos is a word of process. Uh, so when I look it up in the Greek lexicon, it says to mature from going through the necessary stages, to reach the end goal, to be developed into completion by committing to the necessary process. It's this process-oriented perfection. I think Jesus says perfect in the meaning that it's the loving and graceful process of coming to fulfillment as the person that God intended you to be, bringing you up to your full completion, wholeness with God, right? Does that make you think of this verse a little bit differently? Because I think that any time that someone uses this verse to judge others or to say, you're in, you're out, and I'm in, or to, I don't know, draw comparisons, that this is maybe a misuse of scripture. This teleos version of perfect, this process-oriented version of perfect, it's for everyone. And it's supported, this process-oriented version of perfect is supported by the surrounding context in these verses. Because it says right there that God sends rain on the just and the unjust. He causes the sun to rise on the good and the evil. So if we're using perfect in our English definition of that word, then that, like, that wouldn't make any sense. God wouldn't do all that for these, clearly these people who are clearly imperfect. So there's got to be a different definition. And that's what this teleos is, this process-oriented perfection where God blesses all of us, no matter where we are on this journey. I think this verse is trying to get us to level the playing field, trying to get us to stop judging one another, trying to get us to stop comparing ourselves to other people. We're all in the same boat, and God blesses us no matter where we are. In fact, I think the only people that are um, being judged in this verse are those who just choose to not be a part of this process-oriented perfection at all. We're all invited into it. It's what Jesus is saying here, that this is a lifelong process to become whole with God, to be a wholehearted person living with God. Seeking him, yeah, it should change us, but it's not necessarily about tracking and holding tight to our performance because we're human. We are imperfect. We never will be Jesus, right? But we can come into this whole and mature relationship with Jesus through this process of teleos. And I totally get that this is really hard stuff. I think we've already established that. Ben talked about how hard it is to love yourself, right? I just shared with you guys the same. I get how hard it is to show compassion to yourself, let alone other people. You know, I have such sympathy for people who are parents. How do you show compassion for yourself when you spend all of your energy at work and then giving all of your energy and compassion to your kids? It's hard stuff. 
How do you show compassion to other people when that boss is just riding you all day and making you feel like a hateful person? How do you show compassion to your enemies when you've got that stuff going on in your life, right? This is hard stuff we're talking about. Our society, our city especially, is so competitive. We are judged by this, these end goals, this outside version of perfection. We're judged by our apartments, by our income levels, we're judged by you know, our relationship status, even our waistline, or worse. This impossible pursuit of outside perfection, it causes so much inside anxiety, too. And I think the one thing that perfectionists are certainly not perfect at is self-compassion and loving yourself. So how do we do it? How do we learn to love ourselves and others? How do we learn to embrace self-compassion? There is this other researcher, psychologist, and professor named Dr. Kristen Neff, who's done a lot of study on what it looks like to be self-compassionate. And she says that there are three elements to it. I think I can relate to this as I've learned to you know, grow for myself and to let go of perfectionism and embrace compassion. She says there are three elements, self-kindness, common humanity, and mindfulness. It makes a lot of sense to me, too, as a Christ follower. So first up, we talked about this already, being kind to yourself. What does that look like for you? You know, maybe that's a struggle in different seasons of your life. Maybe what it looked like when you were 22 and single is totally different than what it looks like when you're 40 and you have two kids, right? Maybe um, being kind to yourself is a, is a big challenge for you because nobody ever taught you how to do that. No one's ever made you feel like you can be loved. And yet when we walk around with these feelings of unworthiness and shame, it just fuels all of our thoughts. So I have to be really vigilant for myself of, of stopping that running criticism, you know, having a mantra or having time with God to say, to remind myself that the only thing that matters, the only person whose judgment matters, the only way that I'll ever become perfect is in my relationship with Christ. If I want to be whole, if I want to be solid, I need to spend time with Jesus. And then there's that element of common humanity. And I think if you are here today that or you're listening to this online, that in some capacity or another, you are looking for human connection. You are looking to be a part of something bigger than yourself. So what does that look like for us as Christ followers? I think we talk a lot about sharing our stories, listening to each other, being vulnerable, because that's how we create wholeness. It's how we learn to realize that, oh, maybe that thing that I'm holding in shame and fear is actually not so unique, because the person next to me feels the same way. This is how we begin to learn compassion for our society as well. You know, our vision is to see lives, neighborhoods, and our city renewed through Jesus. This is why listening and sharing stories is so incredibly important, because yet again this week we've seen another instance of racial injustice all over the media. And so this, for us, this is a call as Christ followers to step into these places of tension, to let go of our prejudices and actually engage in conversations that help to bring racial reconciliation to our city. You know, this is about having conversations with someone who has been an addict since they were nine years old, or about listening to the story of the woman who's been living on welfare and letting go of your preconceptions about what that means so that you might learn to love your enemy, that you might learn to have compassion for your neighbor, that you might learn to have compassion for yourself as well. And then finally, the last bit of this, the last element is mindfulness. And I think as a Christ follower, that for me obviously translates into time with God. It's prayer and reflection and solitude. What a difference it can make when you spend 20 minutes either at the start or end of your day just in prayer and reflection with God. 
That's what I turn to when that narrative of, you know, you're not good enough is running. It's spending some time with God, learning to really understand his word, taking, you know, these things that we talk about on a Sunday morning and then applying them to the context of your personal life and allowing them to really become a part of who you are. That's how you shift the narrative. Spending serious present time, being mindful with God. The author, Derek Flood, who wrote this really great book um, on the radical grace and compassion that Jesus offers when we read the Bible through the lens of Jesus, um, he says this, Scripture shows us that we can be real and raw with God. We can have the courage to let Jesus into the brokenness of our lives, the courage to be loved for who we really are. That's what faith is about. It's not about certainty, and I've added, it's not about perfection. It's about vulnerability. It's the outrageous hope that we would still be loved if God knew all about our ugly things that we try to hide. So this week, as we move into a time of communion, as we um, take the gift of the Eucharist and we're reminded of what Christ did for us, this grace of his death and resurrection, I pray that we would start to be a little more graceful with ourselves and with each other. I pray that you might start to allow God into the ugly things Allow him to flip the conversations going on in your brain, that running narrative of criticism, that you would start to have more compassion for yourself so that you might have it for others, and that you would move a little closer to wholeness and fulfillment, the process of perfection with your God. Amen.